Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on biblical worldview with James Jordan, and here he's going to be discussing the world of the temple. We do invite you to take a look at those show notes and sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. In that newsletter, you'll receive a weekly note from Peter Lightheart, recent articles and podcasts, and our weekly videos a week before their public release. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing biblical worldview and the world of the temple. The world of the temple. Well, as we've seen, as each cosmos uh, comes to an end, there is a breakdown because of human sin. Uh, In addition to the fact that God would reach in and restructure the world anyway to help bring it from glory to glory, and it's man's task as well to reach in and restructure the world by bringing it from glory to glory, there is the complicated factor of human sin, which tends to destroy each of the heavens and earth, each cosmic polity that God sets up. And we saw that the world fell apart uh, before Moses was given a new world, and now we will look at the fact that the Mosaic world falls apart, and the entire system breaks down, and the world has to be restructured, a new heaven and a new earth created, a new cosmos, a new model. Progressively, again, more glorious than the one before, and brought about as a result of a breakdown and restructuring process. Let's look first of all then at the breakdown of the Mosaic cosmos. It comes about as a result of sin and apostasy on the part of Israel. The book of Judges records for us uh, the fall and progressive decline of Israel. I've discussed this at considerable length in my own commentary on the subject, but we do find that fall recorded in in Judges chapter 1 when the people fail to take the land and God brings judgment against them and says, as a result, he will not drive the the, uh, pagans completely out of the land. And so while there's a sense in which Israel is established in the Eden, there's another sense in which Eden is not yet purged and the city of Jerusalem is not taken. Well, this apostasy continues through the book of Judges along with periods of revival. And each time we find that when Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord would sell them into the hands of an oppressor and then they would cry out to him. When we get over to Judges chapter 13, we find that Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them, didn't even sell them, just gave them away into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years And this time there is absolutely nothing said about any crying to the Lord or any repentance. The people are so far dead in trespasses and sins that they don't even call out to God. In fact, when God manifests himself to the father of uh, Samson, he does not recognize whom he is dealing with. But God in his sovereign grace initiates a change and begins to rebuild the kingdom. At almost exactly the same time in history, we find that the ministry of the Eli, the priests, is being destroyed through sin. 
Eli was apparently something of a faithful man as a priest, but his sons were utterly faithless and had apostatized from the worship of the true God and were initiating all the fertility cult practices of the pagan gods round about. And this is symbolized for us in 1 Samuel chapter 3, when we read that Eli, uh, chapter 3 verse 2, that Eli, the high priest's eyesight, had begun to grow dim and he could not see well, indicating his loss of judgment, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out, indicating that the lamp was in the process of going out. So the lamp of Israel is going out, the nation is pervaded with sin, and the moral structure of the world is breaking down. The heavens and the earth are being defiled. And when that happens, God acts to rend the polity of the nation and act, uh, make the nation into a sacrifice, so to speak, by tearing it apart and rebuilding it. And this is the next thing that happens. Uh, the rending of the nation is seen in the capture of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which should not have been dragged out into battle as if it were a magic box, but was. And when Israel pulled the ark out uh, to take it with them into battle, God allowed the ark to be captured. Now, in terms of the history of the period, this was something of a, a gracious act on God's part because instead of letting Israel go into captivity, he himself goes into captivity. And while he himself is in captivity to the Philistines, he defeats their gods and comes back with much spoil. But the fact is, the ark now has been torn out of the tabernacle, which means that the tabernacle is an empty shell. It has been desolated, language used later on in Scripture to speak of God's leaving the tabernacle or the temple. It's been desolated. And what's interesting is that after the ark returns to Israel, it is never put back into the tabernacle again, which means that the, the symbol of heaven and of God's throne vanishes. And all we have left then is the garden sanctuary of the tabernacle courts and sacrifices, but without the symbolic heavens that are supposed to attend them. The rest of the furniture may have been preserved, but since the heart of the heavenly house was gone, there was no heaven, and Israel understood that. As a result, during this period, uh, while Samuel and Saul are in charge of Israel, and David as well, we find that sacrifices are offered in many places. No longer do you have to offer the sacrifices only at the gate of heaven because heaven has withdrawn from the scene and the tabernacle is rent and it's not put back together. And since there is no uh, heaven model on the earth, then sacrifices can be performed in many places. We drop back to a more patriarchal type of environment. Altars are put in many places. The garden sanctuary still exists, but it's empty and it's defiled. We find that the tabernacle and the priests were at a place called Nob. Uh, they gave the showbread to David uh, when he came there, but there was no central sanctuary functioning in Israel at this time. So the nation has broken down. Uh, it's oppressed by the Philistines. God has allowed his house to be torn down. Are torn into two pieces and it's necessary for the nation and the world to be put back together again. Let's look then at this restructuring of the world that takes place as the new heavens and the new earth are brought into being. As we've seen, first of all, God builds the world, then he reestablishes the land, 
uh, of Eden, and finally he will plant the sanctuary in the land. And these stages are seen here as well. The first thing that has to be done is the world needs to be restructured. And this means defeating the oppressive nations round about. And that is what Saul is called upon to do. The people say that they want a king to fight for them, which was okay. They want the king to be just like all the nations, and that's not okay. But God is gracious to them and provides them a good, righteous king in Saul. And Saul is able to defeat the Ammonites and lead the nation to a much improved status. And then he begins to war against the Philistines. Sadly, of course, Saul falls from grace. He rejects the Lord, and he becomes an enemy of God progressively as the years go by. And it remains for David then to defeat all of God's enemies and give the nation rest round about, and thus to settle the world, the polity of the world, and put the nations in their places. The second aspect of restructuring the world uh, that connects with this is that a new polity is set up. We saw that in the Mosaic economy, the nation was ruled by judges and princes and elders. There was no centralized federal government. Uh, but now that's going to change. And indications of the change are found in 1 Samuel 9, verse 9, and in 1 Samuel 10, verse 25. Let's look first of all at 1 Samuel 9, 9, where we have a very interesting verse. Saul was looking for his donkeys in this story, and uh, this is before Saul becomes king, and he's told that there was a prophet or a seer in this particular city of Ramah who turns out to be Samuel. Now we have a notice here in verse 9 of chapter 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Now there's a difference between a seer and a prophet. A seer is one who sees the word of God and passes it on to the people. A prophet has a somewhat higher status in that a prophet is actually consulted by God. If we were to look at Amos chapter 3 and Amos chapter 7, as well as numerous other passages, we would find that a prophet is actually a council member. And God does not do anything, says Amos 3 and 7, without consulting his prophets. God does not consult a seer. God just tells the seer what it's going to be like, and the seer passes it on to the people. But God does consult a prophet. So a prophet is in a more glorious and elevated status than a seer. And this is a change that is taking place in the Israelite economy. Up till this time, they haven't had prophets. The word prophet may have been used, but all such prophets were, were really were seers. Now we're going to move to the prophet par excellence, one who is actually consulted by God, just as Abraham and Moses were. Uh, now there will be a regular group of such prophets. Now, this corresponds to the change from judges to kings. Formerly, Israel was ruled by judges uh, who did not have any particular glory about them and who did not rule over the whole land from a central federal government, but rather just handled cases of appeal that came up the line from the elders. Uh, now we have a king, and the king will have additional responsibilities, and he'll have a palace and all the rest. And so we go from seer to prophet, and we go from judge to king. The seers advised the judges on what they ought to do. The prophets were to advise the king on what he was to do. And it's very important, as Saul becomes king, that he respect the prophet as God's spokesman. And that, of course, is the challenge that's placed before Saul. 
Um, in chapter 13, Saul is to wait for Samuel the prophet and uh, allow the prophet to do his part and submit himself to the word of God. And Saul refuses to do so. And as a result, the Philistines win the day and Saul loses the kingdom. But the new polity, uh, we have gone from a seer and judge system to a more glorious prophet and king system. And at the same time, as the kingdom is set up, a new constitution is written, uh, which we do not have a copy of. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25, we're told that the Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. Now, we already had the ordinances of the Mosaic economy, and we have a fairly good idea of how it was organized, but we don't know very much about how the kingdom was organized under the kings. And we just have to read by uh, examples and take notices here and there in the text to see it. But it's important to understand that there was nothing wrong, nothing morally wrong or improper about having a king, provided it wasn't a pagan king like all the nations. And it was perfectly proper for Samuel to restructure the kingdom from a confederacy, a loose confederacy, into a united kingdom. And I think that is a, a word for political conservatives who sometimes would like to go back to much more of a confederacy of states type of government. It's not necessarily wrong to develop toward a more glorious and somewhat centralized government provided that proper checks and balances are maintained. It's something that has happened in the past and we see it here. The kingdom is organized as a kingdom and we'll see that there's quite a lot of restructuring that goes on. One thing that we find right away is that the king is allowed to have a small standing army. Up till this time there was no standing army in Israel because there was no king. There was no commander in chief. Uh, if there was a war, the judge would blow the trumpet, the militia would come together, they would choose out commanders real fast and get to work. But now that we have a king whose job it is to be the preeminent guardian of the land, that king will have a small force of a standing army that will be prepared uh, to take the shock of any attack while the militia gets itself organized. And so we've gone from ad hoc government to permanent government, um, and we've gone from judges here and there to one central king. So there's a restructuring of the world that takes place. A new heavens is set up, new system of rule, and this has to do with the relationship between Israel and the nations and thus we put it under the category of restructuring the world. Now we can look secondly at the fact that the land of Canaan, or the land, the Garden of Eden, not the Garden of Eden, excuse me, the land of Eden, has to be rebuilt, and it has to be settled. And that means that uh, the land has to be settled down, rebels have to be put in their place, boundaries have to be established, and the wars of David particularly bring this about. In fact, David spends his whole life subduing the land. And after David dies, there are succession wars. There's a war between the followers of Solomon and those of Adonijah, Adonijah the rebel, and that has to be settled. But once this is all settled and the land is conquered again, so to speak, then the land is reorganized. And it's interesting for us to look, and I think important, at 1 Kings chapter 4, very briefly, we won't read the chapter, but we see there a whole list of officials. 
uh, as the kingdom is reorganized. Verse 7, it says Solomon had 12 deputies over all Israel who provided for the king and his household. Every man had to provide for a month in the year. That, that would mean these people had to collect taxes and provide for the monarchy. And their names were given. Uh, and the entire kingdom is reorganized. Uh, provinces are set up that are different from the tribal boundaries. Now you can see this in diagram 13. These boundaries, we don't know exactly where they were in four to five cities, but they don't exactly follow the boundaries of the tribes. Solomon divided northern Israel into 12 administrative districts, and uh, it's difficult to pinpoint the boundaries of these districts exactly, but it is clear that while Solomon didn't tried not to offend the old loyalties, uh, this new alignment was a move away from the ancient tribal organization. Some of the districts correspond pretty closely to tribal territories, but in other cases, new divisions were made. More important, all these new districts were administered, were administered by servants of Solomon under the supervision of Azariah, the chief administrator. Jerusalem became the hub of the nation and the various territories were obliged to supply provisions for the new non-self-supporting bureaucracy in the royal city and palace, as we've seen one month, a, one month a year. So there was a radical change in the way the kingdom was organized. Now, uh, we'll return to this in the next tape when we look at Ezekiel's vision because he sees the nation organized geometrically in administrative divisions that coalesce with the tribes. The point here is to see that in terms of getting a new heavens and a new earth and a new polity, the land is being radically restructured. And this is being done by Solomon, the wisest man of the time. And apparently, even though it, looks, it could look to our eyes like a somewhat statist organization, it was actually a blessing to the people and an improvement over what they'd had before. I think it's worth remembering that this entire land of Palestine that's being organized this way is about the size of the state of New Jersey, or perhaps Delaware. Uh, and each of these divisions is about the size of a county uh, in the United States. The uh, states of Vermont and New Hampshire have about 12 counties each. And so that gives you a picture of, of uh, the size of this nation, and if we think of it as becoming centralized and somewhat bureaucratized and having a federal government, then let's remember that we're not talking about a vast geographical area or a huge empire. We're talking about a fairly small place. But we are talking in principle about uh, the fact that it's, it is an advance in glory and an advance in government uh, to move from the condition that they were in before uh, to this new condition. And that's the way the Bible is presenting it. Finally, we have the reestablishment of the sanctuary. The world is resettled. Uh, the world is settled down and restructured by the king who defeats the enemies. The land is restructured with new boundaries and a new organization and something of a, of a bureaucracy for the king. And now we have the reestablishment of the sanctuary as the temple is built. And so let's look third at the new world. I'd like to call your attention to diagram number 14. We've now come to the fifth heaven and earth, uh, at least the way I have been structuring these lectures. I suppose you know people could argue about uh, 
whether I've made all the divisions just right, but this is the way it seems to me as a result of a considerable amount of study on this. The first heavens and earth, at the time of the creation, we had the garden, the sanctuary, and then the land of Eden, and then the world. Now, this chart only shows us the garden and the land of Eden because that's what we're concerned with right now. During the uh, period of Noah, neither one of these things was set back up. Remember, we had priest kings, but we didn't have a holy land and we didn't have an earthly sanctuary. The time of the patriarchs, we do have a holy land, but we don't have a sanctuary. When we get to the Mosaic uh, heavens and earth, there's actually uh, two phases to that. There's the wilderness phase, when Israel dwelt in tents, and during that phase, God dwelt in a tent as well, a tabernacle that could move with the people throughout the wilderness. When we get settled in the land, the people begin to live in towns, and the tabernacle is fixed in a particular place. It's still portable. It still can be moved from place to place, but basically it doesn't move around because the people aren't moving around, and it becomes less of a tent and more of a temple. Now, that, that's not so well known, I think. Most people have the idea that you have the tabernacle, and then it, it just stays the same, and then you have the temple, and there's no change. But if we look over at Joshua chapter 24, we would find that Joshua settles the sanctuary of the Lord at a particular place and it doesn't it won't generally move from there it's in Shechem verses Joshua 24 verses 25 and 26 Joshua made a covenant with the people that day made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord and we see this tree here uh, associated with the sanctuary reminding us of the Garden of Eden. But there seems to be a settled place, and we, we don't find that the tabernacle itself picks up and moves around very much. Uh, even more striking along these lines is when we get down a few centuries later to 1 Samuel chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 3, it says the uh, lamp of God had not yet gone out. We just looked at that. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord. Now, where does this temple come from? Uh, we, all we've ever had is a tabernacle, and all of a sudden there's a temple. And as we read 1 Samuel 1, 2, and 3 and begin to look at the situation there, it seems that the tabernacle is settled in one particular place. Shiloh is where it is right now. And around it have grown up some uh, semi-permanent, at least, buildings. And uh, the entire situation has developed into a somewhat more uh, stable um, situation. So there is some anticipation of the coming of the temple, but what I, what I want us to see is the correspondence between living in towns and the fixed tabernacle as a house of God, not just a tent. Now we come to the new heavens and a new earth with the Davidic covenant, and here we have God is given a palace to dwell in because that's what the temple is. It is a permanent, absolutely unmovable palace filled with gold and glorious in all kinds of respects. And meanwhile, we see that God's people are living in the city of Jerusalem. So we've gone from a garden uh, to a palace, and we've gone from the land of Eden into a city. And remember back at the beginning, we said that's man's task, to heavenize the world, to glorify it, to take the raw materials and rework them. And the garden is taken into a palace 
for God, which still has a lot of garden motifs in it, as we'll see. And the land of Eden becomes a place of cities. And we'll see in Zechariah, uh, assuming that we have time to go into this when we get uh, into the next lecture, but Zechariah says that in the future, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. In other words, the, the city and the land will merge together in kind of a combination city-land environment. Pretty much the way we live in the United States, where cities and countryside blend together more and more as the world moves toward fruition. We may think that the way we've done it is fairly ugly, but the fact is our cities don't have walls around them, and then there are no hard and fast divisions between the city and the land. That distinction blurs as the land, the homeland, is developed more and more, and uh, we have kind of a combination city and land uh, developing. Meanwhile, at this phase of history, the city of Jerusalem definitely has walls, and the temple or palace of God also has walls or curtains or veils around it. And these two things correspond. The point to see here is the maturation process that's going on in history. We don't just have new heavens and new earth coming at random, uh, but rather each one is progressively more glorious than the one before. Each one is in advance over the one before, even though that's not always immediately apparent. The second aspect of the new world I'd like to call attention to is the mountain of Zion itself which you can see in diagram 15. The mountain of Zion uh, is accommodated in the Psalms and in um, other places in the Bible to the symbolism of the world. Remember the dry land originally emerged out of the sea. And the highest place on the dry land was the contact point with heaven. And then if you go down the dry land to the sea, then the sea becomes a symbol for the abyss. And that holy mountain coming out of the ground, uh, coming out of the sea, is pictured in the Psalms with Mount Zion. And uh, you could, we could read numerous places that indicate that type of thinking. We won't. What I want to call your attention to is the development of Gehenna. Gehenna is at the foot of Mount Zion, and it is the abyss or hell. And in Second Kings 23. We find where, where uh, it became the defiled ground. It says that Josiah defiled Topheth, the place of burning, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire for Molech. And this valley, right outside of Mount Zion, becomes a place of garbage. And when Jesus comes along and reuses the word Gehenna or hell, that is what he refers to. And so visually, we can see Zion as a world. We have at the bottom the abyss or hell. We have the Edenic city all around the sides and top of it. And then at the top, we have the garden sanctuary and the symbolic heavens. And so this, too, is part of the new world, a microcosm of the world, and a picture of what the world can be if God's people are faithful and the influences of the kingdom flow out from Zion to the uttermost parts of the earth. We come now to the Temple of Solomon. And there are diagrams of the temple uh, in figure diagram number 16 in your notebook. We won't really do a whole lot with all the information there, but uh, it does give you some idea of what it was like. 
The information on the temple is found in 1 Kings 6 and 7, uh, as well as parallel passages in Chronicles. And there are several observations we want to make on the temple as a new heaven and earth model. First of all, the proportions are doubled, in some cases tripled, between the tabernacle and the temple. In the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies was 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. In the temple, it's 20 by 20 by 20, which is actually eight times as large. And the holy place uh, is three times as high as well as twice as wide and long, uh, so that it is the proportions are even greater. And I think we can see in this an image of glorification uh, as the world goes from glory to glory. As splendid as the tabernacle was, the temple is larger and more splendid. God's kingdom is growing. A second thing we can notice about the temple is that the curtains, the sky-like curtains of blue and red and purple that uh, surrounded the interior of the tabernacle are here replaced with gold, uh, cedar wood, but then overlaid with gold, uh, not only the walls and the ceiling, but also the floor so that every surface in both rooms was golden. And uh, this seems to be an idea of a, a glorified sky. We're not really told much about what it might mean, although it's interesting to notice that uh, the icons of the church in the Middle Ages uh, generally painted the sky of heaven as golden and probably drew from this passage and other ideas for that. But the interior was all of gold, and we've, we've definitely advanced from glory to glory. Golden threads were woven into the curtains of the tabernacle, but now the gold has replaced everything else. Third observation we might make, and you might glance at the uh, diagram 16, is the Holy of Holies, which now is elevated. You have to go up some stairs to get to it. It's not on the same level as the holy place, again indicating the distinction between the highest heaven and the firmament heaven, that there is an ascension involved. And another aspect of the new Holy of Holies is that there is an extra pair of cherubim. In the original Holy of Holies, there were two cherubim whose wings overshadowed the mercy seat, the ark. And the ark is considered to be the footstool of God, and God himself is seated on the wings of the cherubim. Now we have another pair of cherubim, gigantic ones, freestanding in the room whose wings overstretch this. So that God's throne, God is not only seated upon the wings of the cherubim, he's also flanked by two cherubim, uh, and these are the warriors or the guardians of his throne. If you, if you think of a throne in the ancient world, um, if you think of a man sitting on a chair with two lions on either side of him, or two leopards, a leopard on either side, uh, symbolic guardians of his throne, well... God has a cherubim on either side of his throne, gigantic freestanding cherubim. He's actually riding on the wings of the cherub with his feet on the ark, and he is flanked by two terrifying cherubim wielding the flaming sword and keeping away anyone who would defile the presence of the king of kings. Well, such is the new, more glorious uh, holy of holies. And we see from that even more detailed picture of the holiness and terror of the king of kings as he stands uh, over against rebellious man yet calling man to bow the knee and once again receive him as friend and father well we come now out to the holy place and the holy place as before has an altar of incense uh, there at the curtain there at the doorway and then 
it has lampstand and table of bread as before. But this time there are ten lampstands and ten tables of bread. Ten in the Bible is a number of totality. And the idea seems to be here that the firmament heavens will give light, uh, far more light in this new glorified temple, especially as it reflects off these golden walls. And there will be ten times as much bread and provision. Remember that Israel was to minister to the nations, and we see this right away when the Queen of Sheba comes uh, to be ministered to by Solomon. And uh, it was seen that if the manna came out of heaven to feed Israel, now there's enough manna to feed the world. As the light shines down from heaven uh, on Israel, now there's tenfold light uh, for the whole world. And so we pass from the highest heavens into the firmament heaven, and we find the same elements but greatly multiplied, greatly glorified. Much more provision is being made from heaven for men on earth. And even though the Israelites were not allowed to go in there, their priests, their representatives, did get to go and receive these blessings from God and then carry them out to the people. Uh, by far the most interesting change is in the court itself, the Garden of Eden, the earthly sanctuary, the outer court, where the people could come. And right at the doorway between the temple and the outer court were two freestanding pillars. And you can see these in figure 16, diagram 16. These two pillars, they were named Yachin and Boaz, and uh, were given a great deal of information about them in 1 Kings chapter 7, they stretched up very high and they had uh, pomegranates and uh, lilies and other things engraved up at the top of them. What are these doing here? Well, since we understand that the temple itself represents heaven, according to the book of Hebrews, these pillars would be ladders to heaven, stretching from heaven to the earth. The outer court... Uh, where the laver and the altar are is of course like the Garden of Eden it's the earthly sanctuary and we need a pillar a ladder to heaven stretching from the heavens down to this earthly sanctuary and that's what these seem to represent you remember from the Tower of Babel the men sought to build a ladder to heaven and God frustrated them but a few years later Jacob had a vision in which he saw a ladder reaching to heaven angels ascending and descending on it bringing heavenly influences to man and carrying man's prayers back up to the throne of God. And this is carried on in Scripture in that Jesus says that he himself is the ladder that reaches from earth to heaven over in John chapter 1, verse 51. Um, but in between we have the appearance of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Some have thought that those were two different pillars uh, and that the two pillars, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire at the Exodus, uh, now find an architectural representation in these two freestanding architectural pillars here, Yachin and Boaz. More likely it was just one column of smoke and fire. And during the day, when it was bright, it appeared to be a pillar of cloud. And at night, when it was dark, you could see the fire inside the cloud. Either way, it was said to be a pillar, not simply a cloud, a pillar that stretches from heaven down to the earth and provides a connection between the two, a way for man to talk to God and for God to talk to man. And I believe that these two pillars here uh, represent this ladder to heaven, doubled perhaps as a, as a testimony of two witnesses. And so at the doorway between the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly sanctuary are these two pillars, a ladder to heaven. 
Now also out in the court we have the altar made of earth, which again, uh, this altar is not made of earth, it's much more stylized, but it's still an altar, and it is still the place where man offers uh, his sacrifices to God and finds acceptance when God accepts the substitute. Of more interest to us is the huge bronze sea, it's called, huge brazen ocean that is built. And this is something new. It replaces the labor of cleansing with something of monumental size. Uh, a sea of cast metal ten cubits from brim to brim and circular in form. Its height was five cubits. Uh, this peculiar ocean is called an ocean or a sea, not just a, uh, a container or a, you know, a vat, is mounted on uh, twelve oxen. Verse 25 of chapter 7, It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The ocean was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. What is this, and why is it called an ocean of water? Well, again, we have the idea of a huge increase in size from the labor. And remember, we said the labor corresponded to the river in the Garden of Eden that is locked up, and there's no outflow because of human sin. The garden is locked, but we see in the visions of Zechariah and Ezekiel that the river will flow out from the throne of God out into the entire world and bring life, uh, water and spiritual life to all the nations of the world. Well, here we have much more water, uh, and this is the huge ocean of water that is now made available riding on the back of these twelve oxen. Now, in order to help us understand the symbolism here, as we look at this new heavens and new earth, let's look also at the fact that there were ten carts of water that were in association with the huge bronze ocean. Uh, and these carts of water uh, each had a... Well, let's read it. Let's read it. Uh, we need to get the information before us. First Kings 7, 27-33. Then he made ten stands of bronze... The length of each was four cubits, and the width four cubits, and its height three cubits. This was the design of the stands. They had borders, and on the borders between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. So, uh, just as you had twelve uh, bulls supporting the brazen ocean, you have lions, oxen, and cherubim supporting these small carts. Verse 30 says, Each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and its four feet had supports. Uh, beneath the basin cast supports with wreaths at each side. And then it goes on to say, verse 32, the fourth wheels were underneath the borders, the axles of the wheels were on the stand. And verse 33, the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. That's important. So, uh, verse 38, he made ten basins of bronze, one basin held forty baths, and these basins were put in these chariots. So now we have ten uh, chariots, and these chariots have wheels. We're told all about the wheels. And there are lions and oxen and cherubim engraved on these chariots, and these chariots carry water. Now, the best explanation for that I found, and I think it makes a great deal of sense, is that these chariots picture the carrying of the water out into the world. <clears throat> just as there were four rivers that flowed out of Eden, here we have ten rivers that flow out from the huge bronze ocean. 
Now, actually, they're not going to leave uh, the Garden of Eden. They're not going to leave this area until we get over to the prophecy of Zechariah, and there we will see the chariots and horses going out. But it's at least pictured here in potential that these chariots of water uh, are available to carry the streams out from the ocean to the world. Now, we can get a better picture of this if we look at Ezekiel chapter 1, and we'll study that in more, a little bit more detail next time. But in Ezekiel 1, we have a similar picture involving the cherubim. Cherubim. Uh, the cherubim held up, we saw before, the firmament. Verse 22 of Ezekiel 1. Now, over the heads of the living beings, the cherubim, there was something like a firmament, like the awesome gleam of ice crystal extended over their heads. Now, this is the heavenly ocean that in Genesis chapter 1 was separated. Remember, God established the firmament to separate the waters above the firmament from the waters below. Now, the cherubim here are pictured as supporting the firmament, which is an ocean, and God is enthroned above that. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we have the same picture because John gets up into heaven and he finds that he's standing on a sea of glass. And this is repeated numerous times in the book of Revelation. And God's throne is on that sea of glass. Now let's, let's correspond these things in our mind. Cherubim supporting the firmament with the heavenly ocean above it. And these cherubim in Ezekiel 1 have wheels and they are forming a chariot. We go back into the temple and we find these ten chariots with cherubim as well as other creatures on their side and they are supporting bowls of water. So those bowls of water would represent the heavenly ocean which is the water of baptism that comes down from above showering down out of heaven onto the earth as on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit showered down from heaven out of the heavenly ocean. The cherubim then, then are, uh, there are ten chariots, ten cherubim chariots uh, supporting these bowls of water and then we have the brazen ocean which is riding on the backs of twelve bulls. Now what are the twelve bulls? Well, if we look at Numbers chapter 2, we're flying back and forth around the Bible now, I know, but we have to think visually. If we look at Numbers chapter 2, we find that in the tabernacle, the Israelites were arranged around the throne of God in groups of three. There were three tribes on each side. And they had exactly the same position as these twelve bulls. And the twelve tribes of Israel, arranged in four groups of three on either side, were supporting God's throne in the middle. And here the twelve oxen that support the heavenly sea represent the twelve tribes of Israel. They hold up the firmament ocean and God's throne. That's what worship is, to exalt God and to exalt his throne and to hold up the heavens um, for men to see. And so what we have here in a picture is a picture of the witness of Israel as it holds up the heavenly ocean and makes possible the outflow of that water through the ten chariots to the world. So, here we have the river that flows out of Eden, and we have a much more complicated symbolic picture of it than we've ever had before. The, the Israelite tribes, represented by the bulls, 
holding up this, uh, this great ocean. And then these other animals that are much swifter, uh, the cherubim and the lion, uh, as well as the oxen, being there to carry these influences out to the world. Now, they're, they're stationed. They aren't ready to carry it out yet, but they will be carrying these influences out to the world and bringing heavenly influences down to the earth and cleansing the world and drawing all people to God's throne. So we have the brazen sea, the brazen ocean, and the ten chariots of water. And finally, in the court, out in the Garden of Eden, uh, we have trees. We've just looked at animals that were out there, and the animals symbolized people. We also have trees. First Kings 6 and 7 don't tell us anything about the trees that are planted there, but the book of Psalms does tell us about the trees that were planted in the outer court area. Uh, Psalm 58, Psalm 52 Verse 8, As for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. So that these trees symbolize men just as the animals symbolize men, but nevertheless they remind us of the Garden of Eden, trees and animals in the courtyard of God's house, in the garden section, in the earthly sanctuary. The same thing is said in Psalm 92, verses 12 and 13. The righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow as a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will yield fruit in old age and be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. So, there we have the trees that are out there reminding us of the Garden of Eden and representing once again the, the steadfastness and work of the righteous man who is planted by the rivers of water, who bears his fruit in his season and whose leaf does not wither, as Psalm 1 says. Well, here we have the new heavens and the new earth, the garden sanctuary. Finally, we have uh, a new Eden, land of Eden, and it's much more complex and developed than the previous Edens have been. Now, outside of God's court, we have a palace for the king uh, that's described for us in 1 Kings 7. And we have the city. And then we have, of course, the holy land. So that the, the construction of the land of Eden has become more complex in this new heavens and new earth. In conclusion, we've seen how the Mosaic system was torn down because of human sin. Uh, the tabernacle was ripped up and then restructured and rebuilt as this glorious temple. And one of the most uh, prominent features of the temple is the huge brazen ocean, uh, just brim with water of life, ready to flow out of heaven and to all the nations of the world, if Israel will be faithful, and when the new covenant comes. And we'll have to look in the next lecture to see whether Israel was faithful and what happened to this new heavens and earth that God so graciously gave them in the days of David and Solomon. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.